Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Today, we'll begin with a question from our amazing guest, Rick Stevenson, who said, Personal storytelling helps us to make sense of past influences and future possibilities. It gives us perspectives on our lives and enables us to identify our own arcs, defining where we need to go. After all, how are we going to get where we want to go unless we know where that is? It's a mighty good question for our time, Rick, and thank you. Welcome to dropping in this morning. Hey, good morning from the West Coast. Cool. Glad to have you. Uh, I know that your parents were teachers and the value of education uh, was uh, an extraordinary uh, priority in your upbringing. Summed up by Thomas Jefferson, I thought this was so applicable. Enlighten the people generally and tyranny and oppressions of body and mind will vanish like evil spirits at the dawn of day. It's like we're taking back our power as individuals through this book. Uh, and the book is called 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. It's published by Rick Stevenson, uh, 5,000 day, 5, Days Publisher. And it's 152 pages of practical wisdom from stories of young people versus stories about young people. Rick, you are delving into the minds and hearts of young people through your interviews, and I want to really get to that about how your process works. For those of you that don't know, Rick Stevenson, Dr. Rick Stevenson, has produced, written, and directed 13 feature films and nearly 100 hours of television. He has worked with Robert Redford, Hugh Grant, Christopher Plummer, Kiefer Sutherland, Meg Ryan, Patrick Dempsey, Jennifer Connelly, Mark Harmon, and many others. So we're really honored to have you with us. Uh, Rick is the founder of the 5,000 Days Project, which involves 10,000 kids over six continents. Very fitting that dropping in and Voice America Internet Talk Radio is um, global. Uh, and he has pioneered the practice of personal story mentoring, which helps kids capture and become authors of their own stories, the 5000daysproject.org. You can find it there. He is the author of two books, including 21 Things You Forgot About Being Kids, uh, Being a Kid, based on his 5,700 interviews with kids from 12 countries. Um, it, the kudos go on and on, but you also co-founded the film school with T Tom Skerritt and Stuart Stern and is the director of Prodigy Camp for the 20 most talented young filmmakers in the world. Rick Stevenson has won over 40 awards for his work on film, television, and commercials. He holds a doctorate from Oxford University, a master's from the London School of Economics, and a bachelor's degree from Whitman. Rick is married with four children of his own. www.rickstevenson.com is his website. And Rick, uh, just so glad to be with you. You've said 
um, that the beautiful thing about emotions, now that we're getting right to these interviews that you conduct with kids, the beautiful thing about emotions is that despite how scary and discomforting they can be, they are actually vital clues to the greatest mystery we will ever face. Who in the world am I? Yet our emotional content, and this is uh, me speaking now, our emotional content is the thing we try to hide. Can you speak to that challenge and how you unravel it in your interviews? Well, it's so interesting because I've discovered through these 5,700 interviews that our emotions are the one thing that tell us the truth. And if you think about it, I mean, I I had a... um, I have several interviews with kids where they'll be sitting there 12 years old and say, I'm really happy and tears are streaming down their face mm. <laughs> or yeah, my dad couldn't make it to the game, but I don't care. You know, the subtext is the truth and our emotions are like divining rods to the truth. And so when we allow ourselves to feel them, And when we seek to understand them, we can get to the truth of ourselves instead of being controlled by all of these using feelings. And feelings are just emotions when our brain intervenes. Emotions come from the amygdala, that part of our brain that's responsible for saving our lives as we grew up on the savannah, like the fight and flight. We walk out of the cave, there's a predator there, we either run, we strike back, we do whatever... The amygdala is our friend, and the emotions that come from it, which are not just fight or flight, but also when we worry about something or when we fall in love, when we're attracted, all of those emotions come through that part of our brain, and the more that we just trust them and understand them, the more truth we'll find as to what's going on with us. So true. I, I also think that there's a lovely arc involved in that you admit in the book that your family didn't really have a language for many emotions, including anger. So I'm very curious about whether you think that this has created an arc for you as well, that this kind of destiny has made you more fluent in the language of emotions. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, I think I came from the most ignorant of places, even up until my early 40s. And uh, I was raised in a a waspish family where it was a great family, but harmony was more important than truth. And so so for that reason, we had all of these means of speaking to each other without really telling each other how we felt, just Mm -hmm. to try to keep the peace. And I, so I grew up where my, in my most intimate relationships, I couldn't be myself. I couldn't say what I felt. And hence, I took a long time to find the right person to marry because I was so confused by that process. And it's really funny because um, I was with somebody, I'd been with them for three years, and she goes, well... Yeah. And I go, I, I, I love you, I just, but I just don't feel the certainty. And that had been the same experience I'd had time and time again. And she said, well, will you go into therapy with me? And I said, therapy is for people with problems. And she looks at me and I'm like, okay. So we went into <laughs> therapy 
And um, within three weeks, we were broken up, and I got to keep the therapist. And um, what I learned at that time was exactly what, what you just observed. I knew while I had a reasonably high IQ and had succeeded in those areas of my life, my EQ was on the floor. I didn't understand anything. And, and, and it, was, it was pinpointed by when she asked me to go through the people that I had dated. And at the end of it all, she goes, they sounded great. What was wrong with them? And I said, I, well, I don't know. that they, they were great, but I, I just didn't feel the certainty. And she said, Rick, you're, you know, you've got a doctorate in social science. What, what do all these things have in common? And I said, well, they're all women. And she looked at me <laughs> disappointed. And, and, and she goes, think deeper. And I said, me? And she said, bingo. And suddenly... It seemed probably so obvious to everybody around me. Um, I realized that it was me. It was my problem that I needed to work on. And, and instead of being at all insulted, I was actually inspired because I realized then I had it in my control to fix it. And that's what I spent the next year doing. And then I just fell crazy in love with the right woman who I've been married uh, to for 20 years and have four kids. And uh, it paid off as I learned what was going on with me. And I did that through learning to tell my own story, which is where personal story mentoring comes from. It's so interesting to me, um, the power of the oral tradition, and you really verbalize that in this book. You articulate it beautifully. Yes, we can write. Um, yes, we can put, you know, linear thought to a sentence or a page. But that the, the actual speaking, it almost takes more courage in a way. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you must have found a sense of relief um, in being able to not feel threatened by relationships anymore. I wonder if that really opened you up in a way to be able to take on this project, the 5,000 days. Um, do you think that all of this is part of a whole? <laughs> well, I think so, as it emerged out of that very crisis we were talking about. When I got married, I decided I wanted to protect what I had finally discovered in my family. And I'd been directing all around the world. And I thought, I want a project that can keep me at home in, in Seattle and Vancouver, which were my two homes. I'm a dual citizen. And um, so I got, came up with this idea to basically interview kids once a year as they grow up. It was my first documentary. I'd pretty much done drama and, and comedy. And... Uh, Went to the local school district. They got very excited about the idea. And uh, sure enough, the first interview was in February 2001. The second interview was in December 2001. And what happened in between was 9-11. And I suddenly realized the kids needed and wanted to talk on a much deeper level. And at that time, I went back to a good friend of mine, Dr. John Medina, who wrote Brain Rules. He's a wonderful brain scientist. He helped me come up with some good questions that would help kids, challenge them on a very deep level every year of their life and help them learn to develop their emotional intelligence and, and um, process this difficult world around them better. And wow, has it never been more difficult than it is right now. 
There just seems to be a cumulative uh, number of traumas, the school shootings, um, you know, what we're experiencing now with COVID-19, uh, the the individual trauma as well. I mean, many of the kids that you've interviewed worldwide are um, victims of abuse or have been abandoned by their parents. Um, you work in orphanages as well. I can only imagine how embracing schools and places that do offer sanctuary to kids would be of your project. And it becomes more and more and more a question of building character, right, than the um, curriculum. Because how do you navigate life becomes sort of a bigger question than how do you do your math, although <laughs> math is, gets taken apart in the book too. But I, I, I'm wondering also about the when you talk about 9-11 and, and things like school shootings and the traumas that kids absorb all around the world, you know, the amygdala. So this is, you know, it can be dysregulated by trauma. And yes, you know, paying attention to it, I'm right there with you. Is it also something that needs to be... Pro- processed through the act of speaking, through the intimacy of the interview process and uncovering, you know, yourself as a person, as a young person, um, does that help regulate it? Does that help process? Absolutely. And I'll tell you why. Now, that's, that's a very insightful question. I mean, there's, there's endless amounts of research done about written journaling, and it's hugely helpful. It's a wonderful process as most people that have ever written anything, you know, about their feelings will, will attest. But it's only recently that we've really discovered the power of verbal journaling, and it works in the following way. When, so you have something that sets off your feelings, or you've got a, you know, a traumatic event, childhood event, or something like this, the way that your amygdala processes it, it creates this, this sort of... Um, tidal wave of emotion and the way you can best process it is by verbalizing it because you can't verbalize that emotion without it then having to move to the prefrontal cortex where your language and reasoning skills are so Mm -hmm. in that way it processes which is what basically dreams are your brain is like this huge computer that is processing, which is why sleep's so important, because it takes mm-hmm. the time to download everything that's happened. And so the power of verbal journaling, which if we go back to the beginning, I guess we'd started with cave, cave, cave paintings, which aren't verbal. But the very next thing as we developed our languages was sitting around fires, telling stories. And the purpose of those stories was to share the human experience was basically based in survival. Like uh, there's a great story that I tell in the book uh, by uh, that is about an Aboriginal man who's standing on the shore. Um, and, you know, the date is uh, two, t- December 26, 2005. And he notices that the water's behaving strangely He notices that the birds have stopped singing. He notices that the uh, winds have changed. And a variety of things, he suddenly realizes, even though he's a totally uneducated man, he he realizes a tsunami is about to come. Mm -hmm. 
right. because of stories that have been passed down generation after generation. He goes back to his village, gets everybody to high ground, and unlike all the you know, cities and whatever around him, not one person's life was lost. And mm-hmm. that is because of the value of stories. It's but incredible. Diane, I want to tell you one other story, if I could, because this is a great one about the power of verbal journaling. I have this nephew named Andy, and at nine years old, I was staying at his house, and he wanted to become a 5,000 Days Project kid, which, again, mm-hmm. is this process of personal story mentoring where you do an interview once a year with these intense questions. Mm-hmm. And his brother and sister were in the project, and he asked me if he could join. I said, sure, Andy. So I set the camera, turned it on. I said, Andy, you ready? He nods, and he immediately burst into tears. And I said, Andy, I haven't even asked you a question yet. He, he goes, I know, I know, but I, I know what you're about to ask me. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, you're going to ask me when's the last time I cried and why. And I said, well, that's normally question seven. But um, it sounds like you know the answer to that. Yeah. And he nods, and after a moment, he starts to tell me about this event that had happened three days before in his classroom. And he started getting into the story, and then he just couldn't continue. Yeah. And so I uh, said, Andy, I've, I really want to get this story. When you're ready, I'm here. Camera's rolling. He nods and tries to tell me the story again. Second time, he can't get through it. Finally, third time. He gets to the story, and basically what happened was that he was in the school musical. The teacher asked him to stand up, sing a solo in the classroom. He stood up, sang. The kids laughed at him. He burst into tears, ran out of the classroom. The same thing that would cause you to go to therapy when you're 42 as to why you can't speak in front of the Rotary Club. Right. And he, um, and, and this was his event. And just for stupid filmmaker reasons, I said, Andy, um, could you just tell me this story one more time um, so I can get it clear? And so he nods, and sure enough, the fourth time to the story, he gets it all in one. Then I get this idea. I said, Andy, do you trust me? And he said, of course. And I said, okay, last time I promised, why don't you tell me the story one last time, but this time I want you to sing it. And he looks at me strangely and goes, okay, well, I was, in my class, and the teacher told me to, and he starts singing what happened, and within moments, he bursts out into laughter, and I saw in the space of six minutes this thing that had been so difficult and so horrific that had been residing inside of him that he couldn't even talk about it. I saw him barf it up, hold it in his hand, expose it to the healing qualities of air, and laugh at it. And laugh at it. And that's... And that's when I realized our verbal journaling. It's a beautiful thing that it lifts off that way. And, um, of course, when you do have a trauma or an emergency, the first thing a police officer will do is to continue to ask you to tell the story over and over. There's power Mm -hmm. in it for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, I'm very glad to hear those anecdotal uh, stories about this process. And we are going to go to a commercial break right now. But when we come back, we're going to understand more about how the bitch of anger and the bitch of control and the bitch of perfectionism can become our bitch. We're here with Dr. Rick Stevenson, (laughs) author of 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. Don't go away. We'll be back on Dropping In. 
become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Rick Stevenson, who wrote the book, 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid, and who is the pioneer of the 5,000 Days Project. Rick, you say uh, that uh, I first came up the, with the idea of filming kids once a year so as to create a kind of time-lapse portrait of growing up what researchers called a longitudinal study. In fact, 5,000 Days Project was born on the loose number of days it takes a child to go through school. I wondered if the 21 things you uh, forgot about being a kid, if that number was coincidental or if it referred to 21 as that common maturation point that we think of 21 years old, now you're graduated college, now you can have alcohol legally. Um, is it coincidental or was that um, resonant? <laughs> I wish I was that clever. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, you know, Spinal Tap where he's got the amplifier that actually goes to 11. Um, I probably had another 10 on, on the tail of that. These are just the ones that I could speak to, uh, you know, kind of most uh, anecdotally because the book is really filled with stories. Uh, because that is so interesting. When you listen to a speaker, your interest level, you can literally see an audience lean forward once a story starts and lean back once it ends. Mm-hmm. It's because it is stories that ultimately is the way that uh, we communicate with each other. And absorb one another. I think there's an energy exchange, right? You, you, um, you go through the catharsis of someone's story. It's, it's so interesting. You're intrigued. You're curious. There's a culmination. There's an arc. And then you have a kind of cathartic, um, you know, takeaway mm-hmm. moment to absorb it all. Um, I, I think the thing that really, I, I, there were so many um, nuggets in this book, but I, I really loved that you delved into the idea of fear and desire. Um, and you have this dynamic where you talk to kids, I think, quite frankly and openly, I'm sure they appreciate it very much to have this receptive person in you, where you talk about the dynamic, as I mentioned before the break, of you ended up, you know, ultimately saying to a kid, um, 
um, you know, you're, you're the bitch. Anger, you're the bitch of anger. And, um, you know, how do you convert that? You know, you're subject constantly, is subjected to anger as a kind of um, a control switch. Um, how does that work in terms of mastery, self-mastery? Well, first of all, typically I don't use that language. <laughs> but um, this helps. one particular kid was a, a sort of a hip hop uh, kid and had a half million followers uh, on Vine and had was a brilliant filmmaker. And he came to, to the Prodigy Camp. Um, and he talked about how over the past year he'd made a whole bunch of bad decisions and gotten into bad situations and almost you know, ended his life as a result of um, some of those decisions. And I said, well, let's get into this. Let's find out what's going on because we all literally live on a continuum between what we want and what we're afraid of, between our longings and our fears. And I was looking at, at what he'd been doing, and, and I said, you know, what I'm noticing is that you're, you're deeply angry about something. And he was kind of confused by that. But the more that we dig, dug into it, we discovered that his anger was based on something that his brother had been doing that hadn't been addressed by the family. And <clears throat> he was so upset by it that it caused him to make these self-destructive decisions. And I said to him, you're way too smart to destroy yourself. So something else has a bigger control over you than irrationality and it worked out to be this anger. And I said, you know what your, and you know what your, your problem is, is your anger's bitch. <laughs> he goes, what? I said, yeah, your anger's bitch. And I said, he goes, well, I'm, I'm no one's bitch. And I said, yes, you are. You're, you, you are being controlled by your own anger until you get in and, and we are all the bitch of something <laughs> right. for me. It's been my impatience. I, that's one of the things that's controlled me my whole life. And the great thing about the 5,000 days project is that there's nothing like starting a project that never ends to help you get up <laughs> of impatience. You know, so, You're patient um, now. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think my kids would say not at stoplights or behind, behind <laughs> slow drivers, but besides that, I, yeah. you know, I think I've made a lot of progress and, uh, you know, it, we the, so part of it is identifying. You know, who is your master? What it's either who or what is your master for all of us? When you define that, that's when you can start to turn it around. And so, to some people, that answer is just their emotions. They're so afraid of them mm -hmm. that uh, they become victims of them. And, and through this process, you can actually become masters of them. Well, I think you mentioned it before when you talked about your nephew, you know, you, you hold it up to air, um, you externalize mm -hmm. it, you look at it, and you can then, you know, laugh at it. It's that beautiful thing, perspective. It gives you perspective to see, actually, you know, I wondered if your storytelling and your filmmaking, being able to stand outside the character and see their arc um, I wondered if that mm. informed your work. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think what you're saying is, you know, there's two things there. One is perspective. 
And that is we live our lives like we're standing in front of a 100-foot painting of ourselves and we're one foot away. You know, we, we see the brushstrokes, we see the errors, but we don't really see the whole picture. And when you go through this process, it's about stepping back and looking at the whole, the whole picture. And a great um, method that I think works very well is we all know movies, and we all know how movies are told and the stories that are told. And in every movie, there's a main character, and that main character in every movie has an arc. And, uh, you know... If you go back to the Wizard of Oz, it's, you know, uh, Dorothy who feels that her future and her life lives somewhere over the rainbow, and she mm-hmm. discovers through the, you know, through the story that, uh, you know, actually she's always had everything she needs all along. You know, Les Mis, you know, Jean Valjean starts out as this, uh, you know, a, a criminal who is embittered. Uh, who needs to learn to accept grace and then give grace himself. And so everybody has this arc. So um, discovering your own arc, Mm -hmm. and we're all in a grand arc, and we're all in many arcs. Mm -hmm. Every moment of every day, we're going through many arcs. We're trying to solve the challenges before us. And um, a great example that I use in the book is uh, a young person that came to the prodigy camp and uh, we can talk about the prodigy camp later if you want, but at the center of it is the campfire where kids come to us to talk about the most difficult thing they've ever faced. And in this particular case, this is a 14 year old boy who was sharing about what a difficult year he had, how everything had gone wrong, how he literally uh, was afraid to get up in the morning because of what was going to happen that day. I mean, it was the definition of depression, actually. And uh, how miserable he had been. And I turned to the group and I said, okay, you know, we learned about three-act structure today and we learned about character arcs. Like, what's his character arc? Because how is he going to get there if he doesn't know where there is? Mm-hmm. And so everybody goes, okay, let's work out his character arc. So if his character, if his issue was being afraid to get out of bed and what was coming around every corner, um, you know, kids raise their hands and say, well, maybe he needs to um, make safer decisions or maybe he needs to slow, slow down his life some. Or, you know, they had a whole bunch of very good, sincere ideas. And then the youngest kid at the camp, who was this little rap artist uh, with dreads named Diego and probably the smartest person at the camp, he raises his hands. He says, well, doesn't he just need to discover the beauty then expected and the possibilities of the unknown? Wow. <laughs> And everybody's like, boom, yes, that's it. Yes. And, you know, that's, that's something that could apply to each of us in this pandemic. Like our arcs right now is this fear of not knowing what's coming. And we can either be paralyzed by it or we can look at it and go, whoa, something great may be around this corner. You know, what are the possibilities of the unknown, you know, and, and, um, you know, and that arc really helped this kid get on top of this issue. So by, I, by identifying it, by using movies, you know, as a reflection of our lives and applying it to ourselves, this is something I often do in the personal story mentoring the 5,000 Days Project is, is apply that perspective where they basically, because they are effectively making a movie of their own lives. Sure. 
Well, as a metaphor, um, there are several times I've entered a movie theater back in the day when, um, you know, I came away thinking to myself, I, that was the story I needed to hear that, you know, I Mm -hmm. identified Mm -hmm. with it so closely that it is transcendent. And I think that that's so interesting um, that as a filmmaker, you exchange the personal for the creative, um, giving, in effect, the person, the camera, get get on the other side of the camera and, you know, make this, <laughs> this movie. Um, and I think, you know, you have experienced firsthand epiphany, an epiphany that you mentioned in the beginning about emotions. Mm. And it seems to me that you're probably a very trustworthy guide as a result, taking people through the... So kinds of yes it sounds very much that it's authentic to you um and that revelatory you know upending is is something that you have experienced firsthand you know we talk about um you know covid now we are now not in control we thought we were and um you know it we is, never we never were we never were. It was an illusion to start with, but it's been it's yeah. been now laid bare. Let's go yeah. back to let's go back to uh, the camp, the prodigy camp, since you did bring it up as a setting, which sounds wonderful, and the campfire. That's another like the watering hole, a universal central mm. place of warmth um, and community. How does it work yeah. there? I mean, you're you know you've you've talked about it, but um, give us an overview of what yeah. that. It's like, yeah, just a little background of the camp. It came out of a discussion we had 15 years ago with a group of friends, like, how do you change the world as quickly as possible? And at that time, Warren Buffett had just had a lunch with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett had said, Bill, why aren't you giving your money away? And Bill Gates goes, oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) And sets up the largest foundation in history, which has done an immense amount of good. And it struck us at that time, well, what if you found the Bill Gates? in their various fields uh, as teenagers. And you did the following. You gave them a sense of great social responsibility for the gift. You gave them the highest level of training, which is often not available until people get into college. You put them in touch and help them calibrate their moral compass so that whatever their values are, are reflected in their work. And then you put them in touch with their voice, like what is unique about them, learning their own story, learning to tell their own story, which is the most difficult story they'll ever tell, quite frankly. And in that way, I mean, there are only so many stories, but they're made original by the storyteller, by the lens through which we, we share them. And, and then finally, creating something that's synergistic, where you take the you know, 25 most talented young filmmakers and songwriters from around the world every year between the ages of 12 and 18, and bring them together and create the synergistic whole that becomes greater than some of its parts. And so at the core of it is not filmmaking <laughs> or songwriting. It's becoming the best human beings possible because that will then be reflected in their art. And the storytelling is, is not only applicable to their art, but it's mostly applicable to the people that they're becoming. The campfire is at the core of that, and they come tasked with having to talk about the most difficult thing they've ever faced. And boy, we have heard every story under the sun at that campfire. Mm-hmm. And the ability to take risks after that, Rick, you know, where you've now just faced down your biggest demon, 
the biggest, hairiest mm. demon that you have, does yeah. it make it yeah. easier for someone then to say, I've seen it. I've seen the enemy yeah. and it's us. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's, there might be something to that as well, that you provide that safe platform for someone to make that investigation. We, um, we have a couple minutes again for uh, a little bit before the break. I wonder about um, the importance of storytelling and the realization of it sort of culturally. People are self-publishing. People are, you know, making um, Steve, Steven Spielberg made the Shoah project. You're making 5,000 Days. Is there something in the air? <laughs> I hope so. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm smart enough to uh, be the observer of that and more than just the participant, but I will say this. One of my f- favorite phrases comes from a little-known Tolkien work where he envisioned all of mankind as a giant choir that only reaches sonic perfection when every voice can be heard. Oh. You think, think of how beautiful that is. And how this African proverb that when an old person dies, a library burns down. Yes. Think of the sheer waste of human knowledge that goes out the door every day because we have not found a way to capture our stories. We, we hear maybe the top fraction of 1%. And then we hear social media, which I don't really think fully reflects who we are, if mm-hmm. fully as I use that sarcastically. You know, this, but telling our honest and sincere stories is what connects us. And that's, I, I envision a world where every voice in the choir can be heard. I think it's not only beautiful, I think it's, we're meant, that's what we're meant to do. And right yeah. now there's been, I think, a, you know, sort of repression of that. And certain people's stories were not told or were favored over others. It happens even in social media because of the dimension of celebrity. Um, and I, I love this notion that each voice will be heard, that it will be maybe an oral tradition, because if the man with the tsunami coming had to go find a book, he might not have found it. He had it at his disposal <laughs> yeah. because he'd heard it, you know, and, and it's yeah. much more yeah. integrated into our beings. So when we come back, it's, it's such a pleasure speaking with Rick Stevenson, author of 21 Things You Forgot um, About Being a Kid. But as you can tell, there's much more to this story as well. And we'll find out more about the motivation, why family is paramount to everything, and how kids teach us something about resilience. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Rick Stevenson, author of 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid, and also a pioneer of the 5,000 Days uh, project, um, which is a longitudinal study of interviewing kids, um, that being then um, periodic you know, annual revisits to this growing identity, um, this emerging person. Super exciting. And I, I read some of the comments, Rick, um, on your website from parents who uh, whose children are in or um, children becoming adolescents who are in um, the project 5,000 Days, who just remark upon the calming influence of being able to check in with you, being able to update who they are, excavate their current emotional state, their content, their concerns, and that it's such a kind of gift. Uh, and you are quite accessible to people who might be listening around the world. You're accessible at rick at rickstevenson.com. For anyone that would like to perhaps have a child become part of the 5,000 Days Project, they're auditioned, and I think it's a fairly um, open kind of criteria. But how would you describe it, Rick? Yeah, we're primarily looking for kids that are open, honest, uh, that tell us what they feel, not what they think we want to hear. Uh, the project, as I said, is in 12 countries and ever is expanding. 50%, the project's largely um, financed by um, donations and parents. So 50% of kids um, pay to be involved, which enables the other 50% whether they be from Zambia or South Africa or Cambodia or even, uh, you know, more developed countries that just can't afford the involvement. We, we don't want to turn down anybody that qualifies. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a process that in one shape or another, whether it be through the 5,000 Days Project or uh, just through other verbal uh, <laughs> sort of journaling techniques that I just encourage for everybody, uh, not just kids. I mean, I'm also uh, doing legacy interviews as well with uh, people sort of 40 and up um, to help them take stock of their lives and, and uh, just helps them to sort of put, again, as you said, things in perspective. Right, and um, that was the word that actually was used by one mother, that she felt that, you know, it was a way to have her child telescope out a bit and see themselves as part of a, you know, work in progress. I also think the thing that um, was an enormous takeaway for me, and by the way, this book, 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid, is a distilled um, co compilation of stories that Rick Stevenson um, has elicited um, by being a receptive listener 
to children who needed to really very deeply and badly get their story out. Um, and I think at the core of it for me and uh, the thing that gave me the biggest rush was this idea of, you know, defining yourself, defining success, because part of the reason you're the welcome anchor is that kids are on a treadmill to perform. We as adults are on a treadmill to perform. It's going around in our heads that, you know, we need to achieve, accomplish, and we forget what it's all about. The core values we Mm -hmm. have, um, our attributes and traits. And I think, you know, maybe do you feel by witnessing those core values and traits that you're substantiating and corroborating a person's identity. One of my, the key struggles that every kid faces is who am I and um, where does my self-worth come from? And from the beginning, we tend to define our self-worth in how we're doing academically or athletically or socially or all these external factors. And what kids discover, ideally, through this process is that that's all ridiculous, that we're chasing a moving goal line where we'll never achieve satisfaction and success. And that, kind of like Dorothy, they have inside them what they needed all along. And so the idea that uh, their affirmation that, that, that will come internally, something they have control over, be is is vital and that's why i asked the question you know what are your strengths what are your character strengths and people go into that a little bit like well i I think i'm friendly and i think i'm kind and then they'll discover well actually they work hard and they'll discover that they're loyal and they'll see you know things come out and and, you know somebody will suddenly discover that those are things that people can that no one can ever take away from them and that if they base their self-worth on that, they will always be solid and not open to the vicissitudes of things outside their control. I tell a big story in the book about, uh, you know, issues I had uh, at Oxford. I'm a huge <laughs> I failure that. I faced there. Yeah, huge failure that eventually worked out fine. But um, I learned more about life through that situation than ever. And at that time, sort of a mentor said, Rick, you're going to show business. Now that is filled with people that base their self-worth on what they do versus who they are. And so when they're successful, they're unbearable. And when they're, uh, you know, not successful, they're suicidal. Is that the way you want to live? <laughs> Doesn't you know? sound too appealing. <laughs> no, but you, you, you gathered, you gathered equilibrium through that, that you, I mean, and I love that you were vulnerable both to us as readers, but also encouraged parents to be vulnerable to their children and to share failures as the greatest lessons that, you know, that can be experienced and that we're not here to just be perfect and get accolades. Sure, those are nice, but, you know, that these whole, the whole texture of it is much more accepting. The language of it is much more accepting. And I couldn't help but, of course, go back to If by Rudyard Kipling, a poem that you Mm. quote, and I, of course, love it very much. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, you will be a man, and I would argue a woman. Um, And these words are inscribed at Wimbledon. I I happen to know it's on the locker room. Oh, are they? 
Yes. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know big, that. Yes, yeah, because he wrote, he, wrote the, he wrote the poem to his son, you know, and how, and how to be a man in the, in the best sense of the word. And it's so interesting because you look at our day, and our day can be filled with successes and failures that have something to do with us, but often don't. They have to do with all sorts of external factors, things outside our control. But what's really important during the day? Is it achieving that sort of temporal thing? Or is it being a good son or a good husband or a good wife or a good friend? Like what's more important in the scheme of life, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of being an individual that contributes to the music of the world instead of the noise? It's like who you are, not what you do. And so, um, yes, yes, absolutely. It's so beautiful so to see people come to that revelation. I, I agree. It's completely empowering. And I think, you know, when you sit there and the fear question is, well, what do I have to offer? What can I bring to the table? You know, it's really reassuring a person of their identity and self-worth. And I think that, you know, I just think this contribution that you're making is, is huge. I wonder if you feel called to do what you're doing. I definitely do. And uh, I think I'm going to die doing this. <laughs> okay, okay, and I only, I only pity the child, you know, that that happens to um, like, what do they do with the body? <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Was that the wrong answer? Um, let's just say that, uh, you know, I'll be very careful about that, not to die in front of anybody, but I will be doing this, you know, for the rest of my life. I feel very, very called to it. And what a what a great way to go, I would say. And, you know, I, I think about the story Q method that you've developed, I think even in conjunction or inspiration with your father, um, which is a technology-based, tell us about this, technology-based res- repository of human stories. Yeah, the, the idea is um, a sort of technology that, allows the, the participant to answer a series of questions that are asked by an interview, but not live. These, these are the, the time-tested questions. And that participant can think about the answer, ruminate, and then mm-hmm. lay it down. And then it goes to their cloud, and they can see it when if it's a kid, when they're 18, or... Otherwise, you know, they could see it and reflect upon it whenever they wish. But it's so fascinating to see what is, um, you know, what what uh, people say in years past. We've just um, done through the Project Camp uh, a Black Lives Matter project with uh, one of our kids named Nathan Zonga, and he started doing these interviews at age ten and then wrote a hit song called Truce um, about police brutality and about how, learning to love one another. And, and, uh, but then in the last, that was four years ago, he wrote it at the Prodigy Camp. And recently, given all the events, he wrote a, a song called True, Truth. And so we're just now putting together this sort of 10-minute cinematic experience, but it uses his interviews from when he was 10 
and 11 and 12. And looking back at those and seeing this well-raised black child talk about, well, I had a crush on this girl and then I was with my friend, but then I realized I was their waiter yeah. <laughs> and, and in, in my dream and, and expressing worries about whether he'll be homeless when he grows up and to just be able to capture, you know, this, this um, awakening of this young man over 10 years, which will be coming out in this uh, truth to truth video uh, is a testimony to how we feel so many different feelings that then just get lost in our history. And being able to capture that leads, as Hercules called, an informed life. Mm-hmm. Know thyself. We only have a couple minutes left, sadly. But I, I think there you've really hit upon also the untold story, the unheard voices, the unheard range of emotions that we're just learning about, thank goodness, now with Black Lives Matter, and this will contribute to it learning about the talk that um, black males receive from their mothers and the horror of their fears, how to establish a fear-desire continuum becomes just that much more challenging. I, we have just a moment left, but I want to thank you so much, Rick. Uh, Rick Stevenson, author of 21 Things You Forgot About Being a Kid. You can find him on um, Facebook at Dr. Rick Stevenson and also Rick at rickstevenson.com. Such important work, Rick. Congratulations and thank you for dropping in oh, to our you. engineers. Yes, thank you for being Thanks, here. It was such a pleasure. Matt Widener, Widener, Aaron Keller, and producer Robert Cialino, thank you. And to our listeners, go our biggest thanks. Till next week, stay safe, be well, everyone, and remember what it was like to be a kid. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.